Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show in which we explore the mystery of the human personality through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner. I'm really happy that you're here. We have a great guest, author and speaker, Rebecca Lyons. She has a brand new book entitled A Surrendered Yes, and we get into the idea of surrender and acceptance on this show. We talk about the power of acceptance. How much control do you really have over your life? We discuss anxiety and some tools to help with anxiety. We get into the Enneagram and talk about each type and their relation to time. I don't know if you know this, but each type has a specific relationship to time. There are three that are more fixated on the past. There are three that are more fixated on the present. And there are three that are more future oriented. So we're going to uncover that a little bit today. Lots of good things we're going to talk about. I know you're going to love Rebecca and you're going to enjoy this show. Glad you're here. That's it for me, Anthony Skinner. And now the host of our show, Ian Crom. Rebecca Lyons, welcome to Typology. Thank you so much for having me. Enneagram 4, author of the new book, A Surrendered Yes, uh, 52 devotions to let go and live free yep <laughs> we were just we were just laughing because uh for those of you who know uh enneagram fours uh we had to caution each other against talking <laughs> for the next three hours exploring our deep existential questions and angst <laughs> exactly we had a little pre-call and we're like we're gonna need to keep the timer running <laughs> Well, and that's true because I'm so fascinated by this topic and it resonates mm -hmm. actually with my sort of current spiritual experience and the whole idea of surrender uh, and acceptance and uh, moving through the world with open hands has long been um, an important experiential idea, if I can put those words together yeah. for me. Um both as a just as a human being, as a person in recovery, those are themes that are terribly important. And so I really want to jump into that with you because I think yeah. every type is going to learn a lot and indirectly learn a lot about Enneagram 4 simply by listening to yeah. the texture and the colors of conversation mm -hmm. that are between us. Okay, give us a short precis of the book. Right. So it's kind of been a journey of my life of surrender, and I think all of us Surrender is, a, is an invitation for all of us, but we can run from it or we can accept it. And so that's why I love that you're talking about acceptance so much, because I think surrender is accepting what is. Mm -hmm. And that's the first step to recovery in all stages of whatever it is our angst looks like, um, but really being honest with what is. And so I would say a very tangible expression of surrender began for me in my 20s when my firstborn was born at 26 and six hours later the doctor comes in i'm completely drugged it was emergency c-section he was only four and a half pounds full term and i just remember still coming off the anesthesia because they accidentally gave me two epidurals so that's a whole oh, nother wow. story for another day i couldn't even walk for a couple days wow. um but six hours later i'm completely almost passed out hadn't held him yet and they said we see signs of down syndrome in your baby so that is what is. And I remember it took about a week for that genetic testing to come back, but that was my entree to motherhood. Mm. And so that was a surrender. I mean, obviously there was grief attached to that. There was an acceptance that life for my firstborn son did not look as planned, even up to the day prior to delivery. And um, I think wrestling with surrender wrestling that to the ground requires a whole lot of submission just like surrender just means i 
this is the now the new reality. And I remember thinking I was so afraid of the unknown, but the truth is in all parenting, all of parenting is unknown. <laughs> and so it just kind of helped remind me that while this looked different than the journey you thought it would look like your entire pregnancy, um, I did have a faith that that held me that also promised that that God would still be there that whole time that he'd be walking with me, that that there would be a grace for every day. And some days I felt that more than others. I would say I had a, like an ugly cry again at six months and then another one at a year because every milestone kind of reveals that I still expect things that aren't mm-hmm. deliverable. And then I kind of have, have to have that conversation with God of going, okay, so this isn't just a one surrender thing as his mama. This is going to be so far now, 20, he's 20 years old now. This is a 20 year surrender. In fact, I had this again with God, like a year ago during COVID, he was having his hardest year ever. Um, just, I was starting to see signs under, of OCD under the autistic spectrum. He was hitting himself pushing his head against like glass. He was nonverbal, very Mm. frustrated. Mm. He kept pointing to his head. And so we were doing everything in our power to help him. And I just remember walking in the woods one day, we have a trail off the back of our home. It it was like probably week seven of quarantine. So we're all just sitting around looking at each other. And I just remember (laughs) saying, God, are you going to lift this? I was mad. I was like, I understood surrender 20 years ago, but now he's 20 years old. He's a man. He doesn't have agency to even tell us fully what he's struggling with. We are feel powerless to help him. Doctors aren't really giving us a lot of answers. And I said, are you going to lift this? I was just mad. And I just honestly, <laughs> I hate to say it, but I heard God say, um, not audibly, but I just heard in my spirit, not yet. And, but I heard also, but I'll be here for as many whaling walks as you need. And so it was almost like, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that I'm going to lift this currently, and I'll, I'll jump to the end of the story here in a second, but I am promising this withness. And I think that's what makes surrender bearable. So if you're a person of faith or you're not, um, to me, what makes surrender bearable is that there's something beyond myself that's holding all things together and I can trust it. And if, if it's left to me to kind of carry this, I'm going to continue to spiral. But when I can point to something beyond me, Mm-hmm. then that's a tethering. And so there was a comfort even in the, I'm going to be with you. And here we are a year later from that moment. And a lot of things actually have lifted for him. We got him on the right medication. He's actually better regulated. He's smiling a lot more. I, I remember telling Gabe a couple months ago, I was like, I feel like we're getting our son back. Mm-hmm. And it was like a release of like, expecting that maybe we, I mean, we were already looking up dementia, like how early does that begin and Down syndrome? Because typically that's not until your forties. So we're just having to kind of, that is the journey. I I just think we don't choose surrender, but it chooses us. Mm -hmm. And so I, I can accept that and I can live into that and I can grow from that or I can just push against it and be an angry, resentful person. And so that was in my twenties, a decade later in my thirties, we moved to New York I started having panic attacks. That was a new season of surrender that was more about mental health because my dad had suffered from the same thing when he was about my age at that time. And I watched that in high school and college and my early 30s. And then I would say this last surrender is like almost every decade, I would say, is when we said yes to adopting Joy three years ago. She was five and a half, but at four months abandoned at a police station in Guangzhou, China. She also has a Down syndrome diagnosis, 
And um, within a year, we brought her home. So I think I even with surrendering her, (laughs) that was another ultimatum with God where I said, if you want this to happen, I need you to put her right in front of me and I'll name her Joy. And then two years later, I get a text of a girl in China with Down syndrome and um, my friend. And I said, she's beautiful. What's her name? Why are you doing this to me? It's kind of one of those things like I know I give God these ultimatums, but I'm not really serious fully. I'm just not sure I'm ready for it. And she says, well, she came to me in the middle of the night with a baby that was having a a terrible heart defect and needed surgery immediately. She actually doesn't have a heart defect, but I saw like um, a lostness in her eyes, but I knew there was a spark there. And I I renamed her Cara, C-H-A-R-A. And I said, okay, great. So you mean the Greek word for joy? And she said, yes. So it's not only that I say to God, I need you to put her right in front of me. I also said, I'll rename her Joy because I kind of kept saying in that season of mental illness, like, restore to me the joy of my salvation. I want joy back. And I wanted, like, even this daughter was a promise, a sign of that promise. And then God's like, not only am I going to put her in front of you, I'm going to actually change her name to Joy before you even meet her. And so now she's a part of our home. And I so there's a surrender every day. And then there's, a, like, big surrenders that change trajectory of your life. Um, but I do think the more we surrender in the small and simple ways, um, that paves way for the bigger ones. That was a long answer. <laughs> <laughs> Just gave it all to you. We could be done now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, so out of that emerges this book, which is actually a devotional. So it's not a, you know, a long form prose book. I assume to help other people experience or surrender uh, yeah. and acceptance in, in their own lives by using prompts, right? Right, And, and right. questions for journaling and essays, and essay. examples, yeah. everyday examples. Yeah. So what a great service. Oh, thank you. It's, it's just, I think it's just a daily thing. I think sometimes we mm-hmm. put too much pressure around the idea of surrender. Like it's just, it, yeah, it could look like life altering moments for sure. Moving across the country, shifting careers, growing your family. But honestly, it's really just a posture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. When you were talking, it made me think of really, it's a practice, right? It's not like a one-time thing or a two-time thing. It's a daily practice. Because I was thinking, you know, you, until you surrender to hurt, you can't find healing. The, the fear is largely about surrendering control. You know, uh, when you surrender to your loneliness, it helps you reach out for a relationship. It's like, it's a practice. Yeah. Even confession itself is surrender. Mm -hmm. You're getting something out of your, like out of your head or out of your heart and you're putting it out there. You're releasing something that almost brings clarity Mm. every time. Mm -hmm. And it does as a result also bring healing. I've often told the story of a spiritual director I had who once challenged me as a four, you know, I was all down in my darkness and complaining about all manner of things associated with my past and my life. And he he said to me at one point, he said, Ian, these are the cards. This is your life. Mm-hmm. What's the invitation? Hmm. And I didn't understand that last question until he explained that, you know, embedded in every circumstance, there is a divine invitation. Yeah. to move into some new place, um, and, and I would count in it, among other things, uh, a place of acceptance and surrender. And, you know, I, I think one of the things that causes suffering is resistance to suffering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Right? It's yeah. like those who refuse to suffer, suffer most, mm-hmm. you know, in the mm-hmm. words of Montaigne. And so, 
you know, um, everything in us wants to push away suffering. All of us want to um, move, uh, grasp pleasure and uh, power avert, <laughs> and power and avert pain. Yeah. And but ironically, the place of happiness and joy is in this posture of acceptance and surrender. And I like what you say to the way the world is. Mm -hmm. And this is the way the world is. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've met so many people who unconsciously fight against the past. For example, mm -hmm. this, I refuse to believe this happened to me. I refuse mm -hmm. to accept that this is how I was raised or this happened to me or that happened to me. It's like, well, good luck with that because yeah. yeah. that's a lot of energy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's a lot of work, right? When, mm -hmm. when if you can just sort of say, it ain't personal. Right, <laughs> right, right. You know, yeah. if, if someone else had been in my shoes, the same thing would have happened to them. Right, right. And if we can just accept, and when you do, Anthony, I don't know if you guys have had this experience, but you know, you just feel this constriction. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think somatically when we're fighting reality, you can yes. feel it in the body. Right. It's like you're all pinched inside. You know that yeah. feeling of just being yeah. pinched? Yeah. And then when you let go, there's this like dilation in the chest and mm -hmm. you, you just kind of open and you exhale this relief mm -hmm. like, because so much of it is about the denial of reality, really. Yeah. So you're spending all this energy trying to keep this thing submerged and surrender is accepting the cards, like you're saying. Well, and even one of the most obvious physical symptoms of stress is shallow breathing, mm -hmm. right? It's the first thing the brain is doing in a, in the, mm -hmm. when the amygdala is going off and you're right. in that fight, flight, or freeze. You literally can't get a deep breath. And I remember doing a study before my last book, Rhythms of Renewal, and that's all about trading stress and anxiety for peace and purpose. Mm -hmm. And uh, the American Institute of Stress said four out of five of us, so 77% of us have physical symptoms of stress. That was pre-global pandemic, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but the point was, is that that shallow breathing, those, those racing thoughts, those sleepless nights, a mind that won't quit, really is all of us trying to manage our pain. Mm -hmm. And the way we manage it is by suppressing it. Right. And but, addictions, by the way. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Is a very efficient form of pain management. Right. 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 Though it creates more pain in exactly. the end. Exactly. Right? It's that temporary release for a much costlier long-term um, right. problem. So angst. Yeah. You've had a share. Yeah. You're a four. You understand <laughs> this. And, I don't you know, know what you're talking about. So here's the thing I hope people realize as we're talking. You know, it's very easy to just say, okay, these are fours. This is what they're like and just describe them. And, and I would challenge people who are listening to think, to be a little bit more intentional and mm. listen to the quality of conversation. Mm -hmm. Like the quality of this conversation is different than one I would have with a one or a seven mm. or a nine, right? The energy would be different. The choice of vocabulary will be different. Yeah. The topics of interest will be different. Mm -hmm. The things that grab our attention. And then, you know, as Helen Palmer says, wherever your attention goes, energy follows. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And so this is the, where the attention of fours go. Yeah. And and then part of it then defines to some degree the uh, vocation of the type. Yeah. Like part of our thing is how do we help people with themes like surrender, acceptance, angst, anxiety, depression, yeah. fear. This is what we're good at. Right. <laughs> this it's is kind what of our superpower because we have felt those same exact things and you have empathy you know, like um, I've heard you say before, empathy is our superpower. It yes. is truly, it, I can't not have empathy. I, I mean, I just can't even engage somebody without 
putting myself in their shoes on some level because I feel like I've experienced some version of whatever their loss or Mm -hmm. longing looks like. Right. So we're doing a thing actually tonight on anxiety Mm -hmm. uh, and how each type gets triggered, I think, into anxiety and also stress and um, the ways that we cope with it and how are some better ways we can engage to cope with it. And uh, so you've had this journey of anxiety and depression, all these different things that are very common to fours. I mean, I, I, you know, I always tell people, I've never, never met a four that didn't need to be in therapy. Mm-hmm. I've just never have. Right. I've just never, we just have too much emotional stuff well, happening. My husband says we all need therapy. You're just more aware of it. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. I, one day I remember a year ago, I go, I'm just broken. He's like, babe, we're all broken. You're just more aware of it. Yeah. I love that. And that's, true. that's coming yeah. from an eight. <laughs> I think about, go ahead. Who's worked on empathy. With oh. me. I was going to say, Part of the way I think about our the gift that we have as fours. Are is, you a four as well? I'm a four as oh well. Oh my yeah. goodness, this yeah. is a trifecta. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I'm like, yeah. you are really speaking up. Are you a four as well? <laughs> I love it. Um, but we, yeah, we all experience darkness. But but the way that we encounter darkness, I think it allows us to to mine for pearls that then we bring back with us that help other people that may not go spend the time fi- trying to dig underneath what the darkness is about yeah so um anyway i think we get to experience maybe highs and lows that others don't so we can bring back treasure and help people along the way so. and i think what i have found that's been such a gift is having language mm. i think being able to offer yes. the gift of language for someone who's like i can't make sense of this but everything you're saying is that's is right. resonating to my core so you're almost given the gift of voice yeah to share with someone else who is in the pit, right? Like who is just Mm -hmm. in the center of whatever their dark night of the soul looks like. And they're going, well, she still seems to be standing or he still seems to be standing and they actually seem to be thriving or healthy or like they're, they're not ashamed of that journey. They're not trying to hide it or bury it. They're there. That pain has become purpose. And I think that's an encouragement for anyone. And so I take great joy in going, Hey, if any little morsel of my journey or your journey or your journey can help encourage someone that you're not alone and this is not the end of your story, then, then we can keep going. Mm -hmm. And you really do have something to offer someone else because there's always going to be someone right next to you or near you who's just a few steps behind where you are that needs that dose of courage that you are exhibiting. Yeah. But, you know, here's the thing about acceptance and surrender, in my experience. it It's not something you can manufacture. No. Nope. There's no button. You know what I mean? There's no surrender button That's where right. we can go, yeah. doink, you know. There's no strategy. There's for no surrender. strategy. And, you know, uh, he, here's been my experience of what, what has really helped me is uh, a really, as, I mean, as often as I can live in this rhythm. And I know that daily rhythms are so important to you as a major theme in your work, right? Um, in fact, one of your books was Rhythms of Renewal, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, there you have to, I think the only thing we can do is set the table mm-hmm. to experience surrender and acceptance. And it may not come as quickly as we'd like, right? Right. And so for me, a, a daily rhythm is just one of contemplation and meditation. Mm-hmm. Now, some people would call it centering prayer in the Christian tradition. Others, and maybe even in an atheist community, might call it mindfulness meditation, whatever mm-hmm. it is, which is to really come before your higher power, God, Jesus, whatever your thing is, right? 
<coughs> and I say that because <coughs> some of our audience don't self-identify as sure. Christians. I think that for me, just shutting up and actually making a point of quieting my discursive, busy mind and, and in some way opening myself up to what Thomas Keating calls divine therapy. Yeah. It's as if to say, God, I have nothing to say here. Yeah, I, I am done talking. And all I'm going to do is quiet the mind, focus on my breath, maybe use a prayer word or not, mm -hmm. uh, and trust that in the silence that you are working in the background, rewiring, repairing, you know what yeah. I mean? Like doing, Healing. like, yes. yeah, doing some kind of um, maintenance work on the right. system. You right. know, I don't want to use, you know, uh, yeah. mechanic language for a human apart, but, you know, yeah. it, what's your daily rhythm then for cultivating? Yeah. Yes. A space in which surrender is most likely going to happen. Yeah, I have several, but I would say probably the top one every morning. Uh, I live in Franklin, so we used to be neighbors. We're not too far from each other now in Nashville and Franklin, but we have a front porch and I can see more animals than people. So I'll just stop there. And I used to live in Manhattan. So one of these things is not like the other. Um, but I sit on the porch like every day this summer, first thing in the morning, watch the sunrise. I'm usually up around five or six. And it's not because I'm, you know, I just, whatever, I have to wake up when the sun comes up. But all that to say, I'll just sit out there. And I would say in the past, I used to think like, I need to get through this book in the next two days, or I, I need, I want to journal these three pages immediately. And I have felt more prompted to just be and listen to the birds wake up and just like look out it's a really pretty view because it's just you see the fog rising when the sun comes up and Tennessee's just really pretty can mm -hmm. we just say that yeah. um and so as a result I'm just kind of soaking in the beauty the beauty of nature and creation and watching everyone wake up and there's a real grace in that to just be in it and enjoy it, like actually enjoy it and not feel like I need to say something or offer something, but just receive. And um, Kurt Thompson, he writes a lot about shame and his new book, The Soul of Shame, but then he also writes a new book coming out called The Soul of Desire. And it's all about how when we're seen and known and loved in the absence of shame, we can create beautiful things. Mm -hmm. And it's all about that connection of desire with beauty. And I do find that when I'm in a healthier place and I'm not condemning myself or second-guessing things or living in regret, <coughs> or living in regret, I can actually have the ability to dream again and recover those passions and feel that natural momentum of creativity. Right. So you're married to Gabies and eight. Yes. And I, one thing I want to point out to people is that uh, each of us has, you know, let's say superpowers, right? Um, each type. But certain types are not naturally self-reflective. Right. You know, eights are not naturally self-reflective people. I've learned that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> lots of sevens are not naturally self-reflective people. Um, lots of people are so other-referenced, like uh, ones, twos, and sixes. They're out, so there's the focus is outwardly placed. Whereas like fours, fives, and nines are very inwardly focused people. They're self-referencing, mm -hmm. right? And we have so much to learn from each other. Like I, yes. I'm often, you know, I'm 60 now, so I've gotten a little bit better. Although like this year, I've wondered if I have made massive steps backwards in some <laughs> ways, but whatever. Um, 
And so I have to learn to be more other referencing. Yes. Others need to learn to be more self-reflective. It's, yeah. it's a harder climb, right? So I think that's one of the benefits of daily rhythms. Like it's easy for me to go sit on the porch like you, sit, mm -hmm. reflect, do all that stuff, journal, wonder about my inner world, you know, <laughs> exactly. where it's my place in the grand scheme of the universe. Right. And eights are like, they get up in the morning, they're like, give me some food, I'm going to go conquer something. You yes. know what I mean? It's like, yes, absolutely. Right? And I'm like, how do you wake up and you're just running and you're doing all these things and you're moving, like you're moving the ball down the court and it's like effortless for you. And I'm like, my mind just wants to explode watching you get on your laptop like that early in the morning. And it's like effortless. And you're at peace with holding it all. And, and it just makes me want to completely spiral. So I do think it's really good to be paired. It's not, I, we're both passionate people. So I wouldn't say that it's like an easy thing. Like mm -hmm. we both feel very strong about our passions. And sometimes they complement very well. And sometimes we just see something differently. And we're just going to go toe to toe. And I've learned that even in the kind of getting, be both of us being true to who we are, uh, could look like fighting, but really it's us just going like, I want to hear you and I also want to be heard and I want us to sit in the tension of something and not give up and walk away. Or do something necessary. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's been such a, a maturing thing, obviously for both of us, we're at 24 years and um, knowing that no marriages are easy ever. And, but yet there's a point of being together that sharp, that like hones and rounds us out, which is, mm -hmm. I think, extremely important. Yeah. Someone once said to me that uh, the the that your partner is the central agent of your sanctification. It's true. Right? It's true. I mean that that, that uh, hundred percent. You know, in some ways, you're living with the the enemy of your ego, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Who yeah. sees everything? Right? Yeah. Who yeah. sees absolutely everything? Okay, let's talk about anxiety for just okay. a moment because yes. I think it's something everybody struggles with. Most fours I know have at some point or another struggled mm -hmm. with depression. Mm -hmm. um, we seem to be particularly susceptible um, to it. And why do you think that is? You know, um, I think um, part of it is this longing for some unnameable mm -hmm. thing that we sense that we're missing. Yeah. I think fours... Uh, and every, every all three types in the heart triad really struggle with shame. Yeah, the feeling of not enoughness. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think fours and ones both struggle a great deal with the the inner critic. Yes. And so, as you know, all those things in concert with one another could create depression. For sure. Right. And yes. Does that resonate with yes, you? Yes, one hundred percent. And I, I always sometimes resonate a lot with a one um, because of that that demand for yes. excellence that helps compensate for not right. being enough and right. that inner critic that kind of yells at you if you didn't give it your a hundred percent and yet um i also th I, th I feel for people who like sit in that place and i and and here's my question though because if i understand correctly like a healthy four integrates to a one is to that the correct? healthy side of one mm -hmm. yeah so then i'm kind of going how how is that how does that work because if the one is the like the reformer and the perfectionist how does that how does that play out because i'm trying to think of myself in my health right at a four who's thriving um what part of the one is coming out for me well i think it's uh number one ones <laughs> live in the present yes that's good it's what's in front of them that needs to get done 
fours tend to live in the past. Okay. So their okay. orientation of time is different. Okay. And I'm increasingly fascinated by the orientation of time of each type. So mm -hmm. for those listening, ones, twos, and sixes tend to live in the present. Fours, fives, and nines in the past. Three, sevens, and eight in the future. So okay. this could cause tension in your marriage, right? Yes. Because your husband, Gabe, is very future-oriented. Yes, he is. You're... Which doesn't mean you're not. It just means that you you lean more into the past than the future or the present. Well, and I'm like conflicted because I'm a three wing. So right. so I can wing in the future, right. live in the present, and then right. also be obsessed with the past. <laughs> well, and you know, again, we're all of us have all three orientations at the time. It's just one captures our attention more than the other two. And I think part of the journey to health is balancing our orientations mm -hmm. to time. Yeah. And not have them be so out of whack. Sure. Right. And I, and I, to your point, I mean, I think obviously that when when you're too future oriented, you can create a lot of anxiety about mm -hmm. things you don't can't control or don't know. Mm -hmm. If you live in the past, there's a lot of regret. Yep. Right. The attention mm -hmm. tends to m migrate toward the negative. Right. Right. That, because human beings will be like, and not have a negative negativity, you know, a negativity bias. And so, I think that. Um, that one thing is a little bit different. I mean, well, it, specific to your question, they're doers, they're in the present, they get stuff done, mm -hmm. they get stuff done excellently. Fours tend to live in their imaginations for a long time and fantasize about doing things mm -hmm. like sure. writing the next great play, writing the next book, doing this, doing, you know, and sure. they have great, incredible creative ideas. But sitting down, getting organized and actually executing is sometimes a problem for fours. Okay. Yeah, uh, maybe less sense. for fours with a three wing. But, you know, we can get lost. Like when I'm researching a book, I go forever. Yes. And I, I'm stewing in this thing of like wild creativity and imagining mm -hmm. and some of it's grandiose and some of it is just a passion for learning and you know mm -hmm. whereas an eight is like sit down pick up the laptop just write the dang book right, right. and you're absolutely. like absolutely that's why gabe's on one member of my editorial support team <laughs> you know what my editor's on one yeah you yeah. know uh and that's a great thing yes right yes um and so I lean on ones a lot, yeah. you know, to help me with the actual execution and the excellence piece. I think the difference between fours and ones, though, is that uh, uh, one is that the four is more idea. Well, uh, how do I want to say this? The four is always there. The, the one, I think, suffers from uh, the feeling that they whatever their effort is falls short of being right mm. and i think the one four's obsession is more about the, the the failure to meet an ideal right and they're they line to look the same and they can both trigger an inner critic but they're really two different things it's like the four is looking for plato's I, the platonic ideal mm -hmm. like I, that's what i want to accomplish. and then they're always feeling disappointed mm -hmm. yeah um, that they didn't, that, that looks kind of one-ish, but yeah. it's different. So that critic comes from a different lens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that you say the healthy four integrates to the one that gets things done. And I think that's why sometimes my team at work is always like, you think you're a four with a three wing, but we see a three with a four wing, right? Like they definitely see like, it's weird how you can have that creative existential 
place and just kind of get lost in it. And then you kind of put the other hat on and you go to work and you're like, these are the initiatives. I really care about results. Um, This, you know, we need to feel like this is moving the ball somewhere. And I think sometimes even for the a type four, that can even feel conflicting because you're like, mm-hmm. how did I go from here to here right. mm-hmm. in a matter of two hours from sitting on the front porch, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. like holding those tensions yeah. of achievement or a need for achievement, uh, as well as a need for vulnerability and authenticity. Sometimes it feels like, like two sides of your brain is kind of wrestling back and forth. Right. But, oh, yeah. But but I have two parents, one that exhibited one and one that exhibited the other. So I think I grew up with holding that tension. But even as an adult, it's interesting to kind of, I sometimes feel like my head's a little bit like a ping pong ball. It's like going back and forth. On. We've talked about that a good bit where the three, you know, projects this image and then it's tortured by the, the four part of themselves that is seeking authenticity exactly you're like i don't know if that's what i really wanted to say you know yeah oh my gosh yeah well so and then also i think one of the things people understand about the enneagram is we tend to be a little bit black and white and sort of view it statically when i don't think that's helpful you know if you if if the enneagram were a circle versus that nine you know pointed um geometric figure I, i always think of it as a color wheel Mm. Right. And so if, you know, three is red and four is yellow, what do you get when you put red and yellow together? I don't remember, but whatever that color is. Orangish. Yeah. Yeah. So in between those two numbers, right, there are shades. Mm -hmm. And I think some people don't just like inhabit the single space. It's like they can get sort of that somewhere between three Mm -hmm. and four. Maybe Mm -hmm. it's a continuum and it kind of pings back and forth a little bit. But that central motivation remains the same. Right. Right. And I think even seasons, different seasons of life, um, kind of what that surrender moment looks like for you in that particular season can kind of toggle where you land in that color wheel as far as like how 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 much red or how much yellow. Because I do think when, you know, I look at those catalytic seasons that shifted the trajectory of my life that did mm. look a lot like suffering, four was like front and center. Like I wasn't trying to hide or make excuses for. It was like the surrender of just release and constantly just confession and just like I, I need to, I want to learn from this. I don't want this to be a wasted season where I shove it down and then I'm paying the price for the next decade. I want to embrace it fully. And then I also think that like sometimes the other side of that where that I start to have language for that. I'm more talking about that from. This was a learning experience. This is what this looked like. And that takes shape in a book or a podcast or whatever. Then that feels a little bit more like I'm now giving myself some actionable steps that came out of that season. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I kind of see that continuum working Hmm. for me. That's good. So I'm thinking about anxiety. I have been thinking obviously about anxiety lately. And which is maybe for this our sake is this vague sort of vague feeling of uncertainty of apprehension about something going wrong something going off the rails and sometimes i think it's just you know from an evolutionary psychology standpoint anxiety used to save us on the serengeti you know what i'm saying yeah like you really needed anxiety if you wanted to live there's a healthy fear 
Yeah, yes, right. absolutely. Yeah. Right. A healthiness to fear. But we don't need the level of anxiety that we used to need right. on the Serengeti, and yet we're still carrying it. Exactly. From, you know, 10,000 years ago, although there's plenty in the environment to make us anxious. It's not like we're about to be attacked by a lion, right? So it seems to me that for, for as a way of coping with anxiety, and I too went through a season in college and then in my late 20s, panic attacks, depression, the, the panic attacks and anxiety was actually a feature of the depression, right? Mm-hmm. My way of coping was uh, really substances. Um, and so I try not to be too hard on myself. It's sort of yeah. like, well, man, you found something and yeah. everybody finds to get something, right? Uh, and so it, it, it seems to me that one of the ways that I've learned to cope with anxiety and to find a place of surrender and acceptance is actually um, in that time of meditation, right? It's mm-hmm. like rather than push anxiety away, it's actually to fully experience it, mm-hmm. to actually enter into it. What color is it? What's its texture? What is its heat, right? And it's mm-hmm. like actually fully go there and then realize that it's just a story. Yeah, It's a story the mind is telling. It's not who you are. Right. Mm-hmm. It's not your identity. It, it's like, it's just a thing that's... It's not forever. Yeah. It's not forever. It's just something moving through mm-hmm. and that when it's ready, it will be done mm-hmm. with you. Right. Right? Yeah. I was on an airplane the other night flying from uh, Atlanta to here and the pilot... <laughs> now, I'm not an... I'm not a scared or frightened flyer, but I'm slightly, un- I'm an uneasy flyer. Okay, I get that. Right? I not- had my first panic attack on an airplane. Oh, fantastic. So, I'll, rem- yes. I'll remember that the I mean- next time. <laughs> and so it's just a slight buzz, you know? It's like when you have a fluorescent light that's buzzing yeah, in the background. That white noise. That mm-hmm. white noise in the background. And the pilot comes out into the first class cabin. He's standing in front with the mic, looking at the whole plane. He goes, so we're going to have some turbulence between here and Nashville. It's going to be pretty darn bumpy, and so I'm going to ask the uh, attendants to sit throughout this brief flight. We're going to be going around storms. I mean, I don't know what he thought he was well, doing. Well, the fact the, that the, he addressed you personally versus over like his little microphone—yes—that that's next level. Yeah, but, but, <laughs> but it was actually a little bit worse because it's like yeah. if this guy has to come out of the car. Well, I, I know that's my point. That's this my point. You're like, um, yeah. he's not joking around. No, like, no, this, no. This is going to be this really is legit. Bad. Yeah. yeah. All right. So I'm on the plane. I'm like. And so what did I do? I just, I just said, well, I surrender. What am I going to do? Yeah. It's like, this is the way the world is right now. Just right now. This is the way the world is. Yep. And um, might be uncomfortable, might be this or that, but I got, I'm watching the morning show and between here and wherever, mm-hmm. it will be what it's going to be. Yeah. And, uh, but during the flight, we're going. We have about two minutes of what I would call a couple of bumps. Then the rest of the dang flight was soft air. Completely yeah. smooth. Yeah. I think that's a metaphor for all of life. Yes, yeah. that's exactly what I thought. Yes, it's it's going to be the worst. The world is on fire. It's apocalyptic. We're all going to, our heads are going to explode. Right. And then what real, anticipation is always greater than reality. And yeah. that's what happened the day I got Kate's diagnosis 20 years ago. Mm. I was like, I have a child with Down syndrome. He's not going to have friends. He's not going to speak. I'm not going to know how to help him. Like, of course, everyone then tells you all their stories of their kids who are 15, 20, 25. You're like, that's really not helpful because I have a newborn. And so we even not only do we 
we do it to ourselves. We, we tell it to other people and we yeah. almost inject that anxiety on like parents inject their anxiety yeah. onto their kids, right. friends inject it onto each other. You're like, well, I hadn't thought about that, but thanks, you know? <laughs> and then all of a sudden with this like cesspool, I, I call it like a tsunami of fear. It's yeah. just overwhelmed and swallowed up a whole, well, community. But also I think right now, globally, I think there's a tsunami yeah. of fear that we either are like get caught in that riptide or we paddle like heck to get away because you can't live like that and and be any agent of change or any agent of hope if you're swallowed up. Mm-hmm. And I'm just no good. I'm not any I'm not helpful at all if yeah. I'm swallowed up. Uh, and so I have to I think a lot of us have to be honest with like it could go this way and maybe I love that we're talking about anxiety and I wonder like you giving your very practical, like, I think almost the sooner we surrender to the anxiety, like yes. the faster yes. we can get to that point. Yes. Yeah. Um, and some, uh, surrender to it. And I remember like coming out of those panic attacks on airplanes because I thought it was God's sense of humor to then put me on a plane every week to talk about peace. <laughs> uh-huh. I was like, oh, okay. So, so it's like mine was rooted in claustrophobia. And I just remember reading so much that, and what it, the metaphor for that was, of fear of being trapped and powerless in a circumstance, relationship, or situation that you have no agency to change. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what it reflects, claustrophobia. And so the combat to claustrophobia, and like every other phobia basically, is exposure, right? So you, bravery is moving scared. You actually have to step into the place that, and you retell yourself, like the story that you've been telling yourself, you reframe the story that you've told yourself is that if I'm stuck on this trapped elevator, I will die. Well, that's, that's not true. So then I have to keep putting myself on an elevator every day. Thankfully, I still lived in the New York City for two more years and I lived in a, a building on the seventh floor. So even though the first two years of my time in New York, I couldn't even get on a plane, a train, an elevator, a subway, or walk in a crowd. Mm. Once I started to experience the peace of God and practice that daily, then all of a sudden I'm like, okay, I'm going to get on this elevator every single day until it's not as scary as it was. Mm -hmm. And I might need my husband with me. I might need my kids with me. I might, you know, I might not be able to do it alone yet, but I'm going to keep stepping on that plane and I'm going to keep stepping on that elevator. And um, like you said, you just chose to surrender immediately. That's what I did. I would just say, Mm. like, I started to feel a little anxiety. A couple years later, we were flying to Paris and it was like my favorite place to go. And I was so excited. And the minute I got on that plane... I'm like, I'm going to be on this for a lot of hours and all of a sudden I'm going to not be able to escape. And what I do, like everyone has different practices, but I just, I just keep going, Jesus, you're my peace um, for my faith. I say, you're my peace and I surrender and I submit, submit to that and I come under that covering of peace. It's not even like I'm trying to produce it for myself at all. I'm just knowing, recognizing you as peace and I'm just going to submit to that peace. And so even that posture of surrender is more like I'm surrendering to something that's got a peaceful presence outside of myself so that that then gives me that place of receiving that versus me trying to muster it up or be enough Mm -hmm. or fight it on my own. Mm -hmm. And that just became kind of my, my rhythm of when I feel the panic, because panic gives you about three seconds Mm -hmm. when you know, like it's coming, it's coming and then it's going to consume you. And a panic attack that consumes you is like the full bore. And so I've experienced that on planes, but then I was like, if I can head that off, pretty quickly as I know it's coming by, by combating that with just saying I surrender or I submit or I come under this covering of peace, then 
then I'm shifting the narrative quickly. Mm-hmm. And I'm, um, it's almost like if you think about like you're in a boxing ring and you've, you've, got, you've got kind of an ace that you use. It's more of one of prevention um, before you're on the ground. So I love that. And then, uh, Anthony, do you know how long the, anth- the, actu- the actual uh, length of a typical feeling is? Mm. 90 seconds is it 90 seconds yeah. 90 wow. seconds what, yeah that's that's that feels right right so wow. the actual uh, any feeling generally lasts 90 seconds whether it's road rage anxiety you know panic mm-hmm. uh, sadness so whatever wow. what what lengthens the experience is the stories we tell ourselves about the feeling right mm-hmm. that actually amplify and l- extend the experience of it yeah, and right. I've learned that every feeling is attached to a memory, so that memory tells us a story. Mm-hmm. So, like, I got a panic yeah. attack last time when this happened, and then the time before that, right. and then this is right. an airplane thing, and then I can never do this again, and I'm not going to fly anymore, I'm going to quit my job, and, you know, it's like all of a sudden, you know, a few seconds in, you've given so much power to this right. fear. Yeah. And yeah. so, do you have, like, I'm just curious, do you guys kind of have phrases? Because to me, I, I feel like to interrupt a thought I have to speak out loud. Uh, it's like the words that come out of my mouth override the crazy in my brain. And so sometimes I'm like, I'm, I'm, this isn't true. Like sometimes I just have certain ways. Do you guys have ways that you combat that when your brain starts to yeah. kind of loop with For a me, story? It's just, I've, I've practiced, uh, you know, meditation and centering prayer for 30 plus years now. A lot of it's breathing. I'll just mm. start totally focusing on my breathing. And then, I definitely, I love that you are reaching outside yourself for a different narrative, and that's what I do. I I ask God to re-narrate my experience, mm-hmm. you know. So yeah, yeah, that's good. Story plays such a huge role yeah. in in our lives. We are, you know, um, Damic Adams at Northwest University says the human personality is actually a, a story we tell ourselves about ourselves, mm-hmm. right? And so, um, you know, I've for me personally, I do what I said earlier based on my work with meditation, which is I just actually don't move away from the anxiety. I actually move right into the center of the storm. That's good. Yeah. And then I just, what I do then is I don't get hijacked by it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What I would do rather is to, with curiosity and with kind of distancing, with a, with a compassionate objectivity, yeah. I sort of gaze right into the anxiety and go, well, hello. Hmm. what what asks what what's asking what brings you here <laughs> well exactly <laughs> right like right and it's like well i'm really scared it's like well what, what could happen it's like well i'm gonna run up and down the aisles like bart simpson with my hair on fire screaming it's like okay maybe hmm. and or i'm gonna i'm gonna have a heart attack i won't be able to breathe whatever maybe hmm. that might happen and then what yeah and then they're gonna have to drag me off the airplane on a gurney and they're gonna take me to the hospital and then what right Right. It's just like, yeah. I just Play start to out. gently inquire. Yeah. And then the more I just observe it compassionately and from a distance, not like mm. I am anxious. It's like, oh, look, anxiety is here. Yeah. It's anxiety's visiting. Well, and something yeah. you've always said that I love is I'm the mountain, not the weather system. Yes. And right. the anxiety is I'm the mountain, not the weather system. Yes. So the, the anxiety around me, it's the weather, it's the weather and it's going to change any minute, but I'm the mountain. Right. 90 seconds. 
90 seconds. Which, See, we can speaking do of this. 90 seconds, we, we have less than that to, to close. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, what a segue. That was beautiful. Rebecca, thank you so much for being on Typology, author of the new book, A Surrendered Yes, Rebecca Lyons, 52 Devotions to Let Go and Live Free. Website, Rebecca, that's R-E-B-E-K-A-H, Lyons, L-Y-O-N-S, dot com. Instagram again, Rebecca Lyons, Facebook the same, Twitter, and you can go to Amazon and pick up her new book, which is A Surrendered Yes. Rebecca, thanks for thanks uh, for having this was the best. So much fun. I love you guys. Thank you for having me. Thank you. We love you too, uh typology friends. Listen up. May you have love, may you have joy, may you have peace, may you have healing, may you have rest. Much love until next time. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.